than God or a God or even just a higher power. And it just makes sense. And there's something inside of us that tells us there's something out there that somehow we're connected to something much bigger and uh, that there's more to this immensely complicated existence and creation to our own consciousness and just carbon, salt, water, and random coincidentally aligned molecules that somehow figured out how to all come together and gain the self-awareness. And that's what's going on in Athens here in Acts chapter 17 where, where Paul finds himself kind of being harangued and, and beleaguered and he's not being very welcome there, but he finds himself one day invited to speak at the place called uh, the Eropagus, I don't know how you say it, where there's a bunch of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Sounds pretty haughty. Probably people like Plato and Socrates, you know, Athens is famous for its, or was, or their philosophers. It says, these are people who did nothing but talk about new ideas and find new ideas to talk about. Great job if you can get it. I think they call those politicians. But, uh, <laughs> but this place is full of, is completely, the whole city is full of idols. And, and in this place, the Arapagus, they, they have a lane going through the middle of this thing, I guess, that's completely lined with, with idols, statues and monuments and altars to idols. And so they spend all their time searching for the answer as to who this higher power is and, and how this all makes sense and, and who they are and what gives them the spark that makes them seek this answer. And they suspect that there may even be a God that they've not heard of who is responsible for all this or who may not have yet revealed himself to them. So thus they have an altar dedicated to this unknown God who perhaps hold the keys to their unlocking all these mysteries. Then along comes Paul and says, hey, I know this God. Let me tell you who it is. So in Acts 17... We're going to read verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of this place and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without no one, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made us from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and also some of your own poets have said, for we, have also, we are also his offspring. He's not far from each of us, Paul says. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So we do not serve or seek an unknown God. Paul says, I know this God. You can know him too. We know him and are known by him. And he's as close as the breath in our lungs. He's not only known, but we are, at least can be, intimate with him. 
And that was the title of this message when I first preached it several years ago, as I now morph into an old message that I rehashed because I just didn't have time to write a whole new one. Thank you for your grace. And uh, now that term, when I originally wrote this, today it's called the known God, what it was originally called the intimate God, but it just fit perfectly with 17 here where we're at. It's not just a known God, it's an intimate God, and that phrase might give you pause, but God has proven time and again, at least to me, and no doubt to you, or you wouldn't be here on one of the last few Sundays left in a very short summer, to worship him, yet for all those efforts of him to make himself known to us, and to have us trust him intimately, many are still too busy fearing God to think of their relationship, to think of their relationship with him that way as being intimate. I've never really been afraid of God, but I certainly have gone through seasons in my life where I was just sure that he didn't want much to do with me or that he was just flat out punishing me. And I came to realize that when I was about 13, who Jesus was and that he was my connection to my father and my salvation. But as the years wore on, my life became one that certainly did not engender, engender a close relationship with my father God. And uh, I did, however, end up with close relationships with several substances. And the farther, farther I fell into the clutches of addictions to these substances, substances, the more alienated I became from God, the farther away he seemed. I was even convinced for a while, like I said, that he was punishing me. Punishment I knew was probably well-deserved. But looking back, these perceived punishments were, more likely, just the consequences of my own stupid decisions. The people I spent time with, the places we did, and the places where we did them, the things we did, the place where we did them, just, these things were constantly setting me up for trouble. And if anything, the Lord wasn't punishing me, he was probably saving me from a lot of trouble. Because many of the stupid things I did should have gotten me imprisoned or killed. Then one day I wandered into Faith Chapel. I didn't actually wander in. My sister invited me. Couldn't think of a good reason to say no. And I heard the prophet Jeremiah preaching to me. Didn't know he was still around, did you? He was actually speaking through Stan, who was preaching on Jeremiah. Stan Simmons, who convinced me that God had a plan for me and that I would never know what it was unless I totally gave my heart over to him. And as a result, the Lord got a hold of me and radically changed me overnight. And then I truly felt intimate with God. He was there. He was like right here. I could feel his presence. I could feel his love. And that got me away from all this other stuff. I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And in that, my trust in him came my freedom. Freedom from all those things that ensnared me and sustained my continued desire to stay close to Jesus. And from then on, I couldn't get enough of the Spirit. I couldn't get enough of the, the worship and the prophetic teaching at Faith Chapel. I, I wanted to be there. In fact, I went to church three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. That's what you did if you were a dedicated Christian. But, but I loved it. I just wanted to be there. I wanted to worship. I wanted to be with these people. I wanted to feel the presence of the Lord. And uh, I continued to sit under that teaching for 18 years. Understand, he was seemingly infatigable, tireless. And an incredible teacher who brought a, built a church of 13 people when he started there to over 5,000. And uh, just a couple weeks after having started this church, I went to the Four Square District Conference in Missoula, back when that was our district office. And Pastor Stan was there at this conference, and along with a couple hundred other leaders and 
I didn't get to talk to Stan, but then I never did. Towards the end of the three-day conference, I had this overwhelming sense that I was supposed to talk to Stan to ask him to bless me. I hadn't been a part of his church for eight years at this point because I had been at Hope Center with Grove, serving there as a kid's pastor. But Stan had certainly had a huge influence in my walk with the Lord. And so as I was embarking on this grand adventure of studying Hope Chapel Red Lodge, it did make sense that I would seek his blessing. He had been a spiritual father to me. And here's the embarrassing part. I was afraid to ask. I was afraid to approach Stan. But I was determined to because I knew the Lord wanted me to, that I needed to. And there was no reason why I should hesitate, but it was really hard. And so by the end of the last session, here's my last chance. Everybody's going to leave. And so I made a beeline for the back of the sanctuary where I could head Stan off. And I walked up and said, Stan. And suddenly my heart starts beating. My legs are trembling. Like, this is ridiculous. But, and I said, I don't know why this is so hard. As you know, I just started a church in Red Lodge, and I, I would really like your blessing. I am what I am because you raised me that way, he said. And he responded with kind of a shocked expression and said, well, of course. And he laid hands on me and prayed a blessing, a good blessing from the book of Joshua. And I thought, why is this so hard? Why, why did I approach him with fear and trembling like this? The man had been a pastor, teacher, and inspiration to me for, for many years. And yet I was afraid to initiate a conversation with him to approach and ask him for something that I knew he would readily give me. Or at least I hoped he would. Why? Because I had set him up as unapproachable. Too far above me to get any one-on-one -on -one attention. Kind of a who am I but dust beneath his feet kind of thing. I had never really had a relationship with him. I really didn't know him. I had learned from him, respected him, apparently even feared him. But I never really knew him. There was certainly nothing intimate about this relationship. It wasn't necessarily who Stan was that affected my relationship with him. It was more to do with my perception of him. Stan isn't a big, scary guy. Those who know him and spend time with him will tell you that. But I wasn't one of those. And I was pretty sure I never would be. But that was my perception. And it was really hard to change. Now that I do know Stan a little better and I've spent some time with him, and I've been on the other side of the pulpit, I know there is a spiritual intimacy that comes from you pouring out your heart to people week after week, year after year, that he probably felt with me that I didn't necessarily feel with him. But now I understand that. And Stan's not omnipotent. He only had so much one-on-one -on -one time he could spend with people in a church that big. You can't just visit with everybody after service like I get to do here. So, what is your perception of God? Scary in distance or close and approachable? Is he still an unknown God to you? Or is he an intimate God? Oh, he's an awesome God, holy and all-powerful, full of love and compassion, and I am who I am because of him. But can you approach him? I mean, really approach him as a friend, as a father? Does this notion of an intimate relationship with God seem a little untenable? It's hard to think of God as someone you can have an intimacy with when you always feel like you have to approach him with fear and trembling. And too often that's the perception we have of, of God being vengeful, vengeful judgmental, and, and all-powerful, a God of thunder and burning hailstones and frowning fiercely from beneath big bushy, bushy right eyebrows as he 
looks at the things, stupid things we're doing. But even those who know better still struggle with the notion of being able to have an intimate relationship with God because we just can't accept the fact that we're not expected to earn our love, that we have to measure up to have that kind of relationship, to be worthy of his acceptance. And we consider ourselves fortunate just to have another day without being smitten by the mighty hand of judgment. Oh, don't smiteth me, mighty smiter. That's the King James Version. No smiting, mighty smite earth. <laughs> Never mind. But there's a <laughs> but there's there is a biblical basis for this perception. You might not find the word smitereth in the Bible, but smiterer. But this is but this is a perception that people have had or have that's been misunderstood and propagated far beyond the parameters of what God had intended, especially in the stage of grace. The words of Jesus in the New Testament scriptures explain over and over again that the true nature of our relationship with our God can be and should be under the new covenant that it needs to be one of, of trust and love and acceptance and grace. And for those who will accept it, it will be one of unconditional love and mercy from a God whose requirements for absolute sinfulness have been fulfilled by the sinless holiness and sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Prior to that, God had to be harsh to protect us from our own depravity, a depravity that could not only that could only be temporarily purged by the blood sacrifices of animals, a life for a life. But God has always wanted to have an intimate relationship with us right from the start, but we blew it. By our disobedience and distrust of his word, we decided we knew better than God what was right and wrong and, and what we needed to be happy. That's what the whole thing in the garden was about. And it ended up costing us our souls, our very life, our intimate walking together in the cool of the evening in the garden with God. Kind of relationship was lost because of disobedience. But God even then started the redemption process, the reconciliation pro process, and he continues to make himself known to God, or did continue to make himself known to man, to those who were willing to listen. Exodus 19 relates a story of one of those times when that reconciliation process took a giant leap forward. The story of the day this unknown God revealed himself in a new way to an entire people. All at once, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They were heirs of the promise to the aforementioned patriarchs that they would become a mighty nation, that they would be his people, people of the covenant and the light to the world. But first, his generation had to meet this God and receive his law. So God comes crashing into the world in a way that they would not soon forget, with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. The day they would receive the Ten Commandments, God's requirement for holy living so that they could begin to have that relationship with him that he longed for. So Moses gets all the, all the children of Israel over to the mountain, they're camped out there, and then God says, okay, it's time. Get everybody around the mountain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up and reveal myself. And then it happens. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. So what was... 
their response to this long-awaited and much-anticipated appearance of God, the God of their fathers, this chance to meet with him. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and the smoke, they trembled with fear, and they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, they're telling Moses, and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you and to keep you from sinning. They were terrified. Don't let God speak to us. God had come in all his glory to reveal his true nature and receive the respect due, but instead the people hid in terror. And we've been scared ever since. People let that fear distance them from God. And God was establishing Israel, the descendants of his friend Abraham, as his covenant people, giving him the law, the black and white rules for holy living, and he wanted to make sure they took him seriously. But they clung to the fear, reveling in it even, using it as an excuse to keep God at arm's length and as a tool to manipulate others. That was what was going on when Jesus showed up. The Pharisees were using religion to beat people over the heads to elevate themselves by stepping on others. So people clung to this notion that if they wanted the blessing from God, they would have to muster up the notion, the courage, the head got off before he got away, like Jacob wrestling God in, at night. The angels of the Lord come to visit with him and bless him. Yes, God was forced to keep a distance between man and himself because of our sinfulness. Sinfulness that at this point hadn't, hadn't been dealt with yet, given the death blow on the cross. So God simply couldn't have that intimate kind of heart-to-heart -heart relationship without his holiness destroying us outright. So the people were right in that respect. And that's why he had to warn them at the mountain. I'm going to reveal myself to you, but you need to keep your distance. Don't touch the mountain. I'm going to come down on the mountain. Yet they refused it even that. Moses, you go out there and talk to him. We'll just go back to camp. Maybe build a fire and have a party and build a golden calf. Kind of didn't turn out so good. Things were a mess. And man isn't helping any. But God wasn't going to let things stay that way. He had a plan to bring those created in his image, his children, back to an intimate relationship with him. One of respect and awe, but one not based on fear. One still based on sacrifice and even blood, but not our own or the blood of animals. The blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, of course. And now his grace is given to us through that Son, by his spirit, that opportunity to have that relationship, the final step in our reconciliation with the Father has been accomplished. But people seem to still enjoy the fear thing, to cling to the old covenant-style relationship. It gives them, gives them an excuse to hide, to be angry, to blame God for being too harsh and demanding. Well, no one can live up to that. So I'm just justified in rebelling, right? I'm running from God. You speak to God for us. We'll just stay over here in the bar. Maybe show up on Sunday if you're lucky. Who can stand before him? I'm doing a lot of waiting here, so hang on. Repentance is still important, but it's no longer entirely up to us to muster up the strength for it or to be judged by it. No longer is it only a baptism of repentance, which John came with, but now a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, a holy cleansing fire, no longer do we just turn from sin, our sin is washed away. 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to, who believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Another group of people in the book of Acts who said, we've never heard of this baptism of the Spirit. We've only got John's baptism. Well, here you go. You need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Jesus came to set us free, free from the condemnation of sin, free from the need of sin, free from anything that would hinder us from a relationship one-on-one, -on -one, heart to heart, Holy Spirit in my heart, giving life to my very soul kind of relationship with God. God came, born of a woman, raised by a tradesman, a skilled laborer in a little village. He grew up to walk and talk and live with us, to look like us. He became approachable in every way. And he was approached by all those who would never dream that they could come before God and receive healing, forgiveness, love, and acceptance. Thieves, drunks, prostitutes, swindlers, con artists, the hopelessly sick and possessed, the damned and condemned people, people just trying to survive another day in an uncaring, hard-scrabble world, they all came to this suddenly approachable God through His Son, Jesus Christ just known as Jesus of Nazareth at this point. And he blessed them all. He put his hands on them and loved them into wholeness. Many of them became his most intimate friends. Jesus came to set us free to have that kind of relationship, an intimate relationship with him and with his father. He came with arms to hold, eyes to smile, a heart to rejoice and to break. Jesus is all of God fleshed out for, all, for us to know. And those who accepted Jesus for who he was and is were accepted for who they were and are and never had anything to fear from them. And that is still true. The only people who need to fear God are those who have willingly rejected his son, who have spurned his desire for communion with his spirit, made readily available through and only through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law, removed all the last barriers, that prevented us from being able to approach God fully and confidently. We can now walk right up the mountain and spend time with God. We now don't need to be perfectly adherent to the law, make sacrifices to cover the mistakes we've made in order to be close to God. We are now perfect in Him. We don't get cleaned up to come to Jesus, we get cleaned up by coming to Jesus. Paul writes to the Hebrews, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. We're all familiar with what's become known as the Last Supper. But I want to look at what's going on in that room where this Last Supper is happening. It was far from a thunder on the mountain kind of scene. It's was not a let's start a new religion kind of moment. This was a bunch of very real people gathered together to share a meal, people whose lives have been intertwined for years, who are about to have their world turned upside down. John writes in his gospel that Jesus was very troubled in his spirit during this meal in the upper room, and he told his friends, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples all look at each other, shocked and incredulous, and Peter Pokes John and says, ask him who it is. John's sitting right next to Jesus. 
so close, in fact, that he just kind of leaned back, puts his head on Jesus' chest, and looks up in his eye and said, who is it? Lord, who is it? Jesus answers, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I've dipped it. He then dips the bread and oil and hands it to Judas. I don't know if Judas knew what was going on. He just takes it without hesitation and eats it. Just having a piece of meal offered to him by a friend at a meal. Piece of bread. Just sharing a meal with a guy he's followed for three years and, and wh whom he's conflicted over at this point because he just seems so, so ordinary and humble and loving. Isn't the Messiah supposed to be a conquering king who will put all their enemies to flight? Wielding the sword and destroying everyone who stands in their way? Isn't the Son of God supposed to come with fire and fury and thunder and smoke, just like God came to Moses on Sinai? What is this servant of all? Wash my feet, have some bread, lean on me, and tell me your concerns kind of Messiah thing. That's not right. So as soon as Judas took the bread and, and all these thoughts raced through his head, it says Satan entered into him. And he's done. He gets up, gets up and leaves and betrays the Lord. He couldn't stand for an intimate God. It just didn't seem right to him. That can't be right. But look at John. Oh, how I long to be John here. Wouldn't you love to be John, leaning on Jesus like we're closer than brothers and just talking? Now there was, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Think of the intimacy of this moment. The realness on every level. When, all this, when the scriptures tell us to draw near to God, it's not just an analogous statement calling us to a higher sense of, of ritual or greater religious experience. It's very literal and real. Come and sit with me. Lean on me. Look into my eyes and ask me the hard question. Nothing is ever answered by us just being good. A relationship is not strengthened through do's and don'ts. A relationship with God, like any relationship, is strengthened by spending time together. And your goodness will grow out of that relationship. The answers to the questions that drive you to the brink of madness in this life will be answered by being with, spending time with, leaning your head against the chest of the Lord, looking into his eyes and asking, what is it, Lord? Where is it? Who is it? When is it? Just what am I believing for? What am I supposed to be contending for? What do I need to work on in my life for your glory, for my own good? How can I be the best person I can be? And only this kind of intimacy will assure you that you're okay with the Lord, that you're okay in general, that you're going to be okay, that the Lord still has a plan for you, that you're in it, hopefully, and that you're still his child. But before John became known as the apostle of love, as he would later, he was known as the son of thunder. John wasn't perfect. Well, he's one of the apostles. Of course they can sit there and lean his head against the Lord. Think of who John was. He was a fisherman, probably fiery-tempered. We know he was because he wanted to call down fire on people all the time. He was always vying for the attention of the Lord. He wanted to sit at his right hand. Forget all these losers. Let me sit here. Mom, talk to Jesus for me. Tell him I want to sit at his right hand. Well, James can too. He can be on the other side, but I'm the man. I mean, I'm a fisherman from Galilee. Ever watch one of those shows, The Deadliest Catch or whatever that tuna show is now? These guys are out there 
fishing in this crazy weather and they're all screaming and hollering at each other and fighting and risking their lives to catch these fish and let's get it done no matter how cold or wet or dangerous it is. I got to make a living and this is our only shot. Better not get in my way or if you don't cut the mustard, you're out of here. So this commercial fishing trade that these guys are part of, this isn't just some lazy afternoon out there fishing on the lake. This is real stuff. James didn't earn the name Son of Thunder, James and John, Sons of Thunder for nothing. I can't think of any pleasant attitude that would earn you that moniker. No doubt John was a real man with no shortage of testosterone here. Yet here he is, this fishing boat captain, who probably wasn't too long ago cursing up a blue streak as he had to fight for the prime fishing spot on the sea or had to threaten a merchant to within a inch of his life to get a fair price for his catch so he could pay his crew who toiled under his thunder night after night. And here he is, the infamous John, arrogantly thinking just recently that he could work his way up the ladder and sit at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom, leaning against the breast of the very Son of God like they've been best friends, even brothers, for their whole lives. Like he's as pure and clean as a wind-driven snow. If you think about that way, this is kind of hard to grasp. John knew very well by this point who Jesus was. And John still knew who he was. I'm still kind of gruff. I'm still kind of ignorant. Cussed out a camel on the wet camel on the way here because he spit on me. I don't know. He hasn't been cleansed by the Holy Spirit yet. He wasn't a religious man by any stretch of the imagination. Yet because he chose to follow Jesus, to trust him no matter how crazy things got, and the things they did together, he was comfortable literally using Jesus for a backrest. Because John knew Jesus. And Jesus knew John. They had a real relationship. There's another pastor who had a major influence in my life, Pastor Grove. A lot of you know him. He's been here a few times. I served under him and with him for eight years. And he, like Stan, had a huge influence on me as a pastor and mentor. Like just a couple weeks ago, we did a funeral together. We met at Fort Rockvale with the family, and we sat side by side in the booth, shoulder to shoulder, as uh, to make plans for the service. And he doesn't hear real well, so he would always lean across me and read my notes. And what, what, what did you write down there? And he'd copy my notes, so he's like right on top of me, you know. And uh, it was very comfortable. You could even say intimate. Much different from my relationship with Pastor Stan. So what was the difference? Why can I have that kind of relationship with Grove, but I didn't have that kind of relationship with Stan? Why was I intimidated by one pastor, yet totally uncomfortable with another? Because I really know Grove, and he knows me. We spent many, many hours together as we started Hope Center. We had a standing lunch date every Wednesday for nine years. Over the years, we prayed, discussed, argued, butted heads. We faced demons and drunks together, fought and made up, and fought some more. And, and got back together again. I shouldn't stop with fought some more. Confessed, repented, rebuked, cried together, laughed together. We had an intimate relationship. And that's the difference. Yes, a standoff relationship is easier and a lot less messy that great preacher up there just preaching away at me. This is great. 
go home. He thinks I'm perfect. I think he's perfect. Life is good. But the relationship that caused the most growth in me was the one, and the one that most deeply affected the way I see things from life to the church is the messy one, the intimate one. And that's the kind of relationship we need to have with Jesus. A messy one. Yes, he's worthy of respect and honor. He's still the awesome God of fire and thunder. But he's also a friend, even to us sons of thunder. His is a gentle voice in the night telling us it's going to be okay. He's someone we can argue with, cry with, laugh with, receive rebuke from. But at the end of the day, we're always okay with one another. And that's the difference between the old covenant type of fear relationship with God and the new covenant we can now approach our God anytime and anywhere type of relationship. We can lay our heads on his chest, look up into his eyes and say what's in our hearts. Because that's where you'll find healing. That's where you'll find blessing in his arms, in the arms of love. Because we know our God and he knows us. We We are blessed to have a God that is known, that's for sure, who knows us has all the time in the world for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we can indeed have a relationship with you, yeah, that it can be intimate, and even when, because we're always unworthy. We can never be worthy of such a holy, perfect God, but that wasn't okay with you, so you took care of that. Thank you for sending your son to, to die for us, to cleanse us, to wash away our sins, to give us back that relationship that you longed for, that we need, and that we should long for as well with you. And a relationship that helps us to be better, that gives us the strength to go on. Always seeking to move forward, always seeking to be closer to you looking forward to that day when indeed we do fly away and we get to see you face to face rejoice in your presence with all those we've loved who have come to know you as well Lord we continue to pray for rain protection for our firefighters and many people who may be in harm's way continue to pray for this nation this world send out your spirit Spark revival in the hearts, in the hearts of all. Help us to be in a place to be ready for that. And thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your protection and your blessings. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.